0: On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are going to talk about the city of Hamilton spreading. They say that within 30 years or thereabouts, we could have 820,000 people living in this city. Where are we going to put them? Well, some of them will be in the downtown with intensification, but others you would think are going to spread out to other parts. How much room is there? How much can we handle more spreading and sprawling? We'll talk to Councillor Judy Partridge about that also. We're going to be chatting about music. There's new studies in Europe that say it is all but impossible not to move to certain musics. We're going to do a test and then we're going to talk to someone who may be able to help us explain and understand why this is. Stick around.
1: Today on the Scott Radley show on 900 CHML.
0: We are now told that by the year 2051, so not quite 30 years, well, 31 years, I guess, doing my math. You know, I was never good at math. 31 years from now, Hamilton will be home to 820,000 people. Now, of course, that's not scientific. That is a best estimate. But that means in three decades from now, we will have almost a quarter million more people here in this city. That's a lot of people. That is an awful lot of additional people to be putting into the city. Now, some will suggest the only way to handle this influx is to have urban intensification, build upward in the downtown, more condos, more apartments. And that would absolutely be part of this. You would have to have that. But there inevitably is also going to be growth outwards. You can't imagine that there won't be. The question is how much sprawl, how far, what are we comfortable with with that. Judy Partridge is the counselor for Ward 15. She represent represents some of the people who would be out in those areas that may now be touched or over the next few years by this sprawl. She joins us now Judy, thanks for doing this today. Oh,
2: no problem, Scott. How are you doing? Good to you. I am from doing you. fine.
0: Yes, I'm doing fine. Thank you. Living in the basement, just living the dream 12 hours a day in the bunker. <laughs> Well, aren't we Aren't we all? Uh, well, you know, I saw you on Zoom today at City Council meeting. Your office looks much more sunny than mine does. I'll give you that.
2: <laughs> well, you know what? I've been at uh, City Hall in downtown Hamilton um, since the uh, pre-COVID and post-COVID. I don't have rural internet connectivity out here at my home. So um, because I am so far out in the rural area of Flamborough, um, I've been coming into Hamilton every day. And, uh, you know, doing my duties and being on Zoom meetings, and today particularly, of course, we had uh, a GIC meeting with City Council, but I'm also the Council Representative on the Federation of Canadian Municipalities, which is a national organization of all municipalities across Canada, and we are right in the middle of our um, AGM. So you know, lots of meetings there as well. But um, I'll tell you, City Hall is probably the safest place to be right now. It's it
0: totally may well is. be.
2: Oh, well, absolutely. listen, you've
0: you've heard these numbers that we're talking about. You They're in yep. official city documents and reports. Are, when you hear a number like 820,000 people in Hamilton in 30 years, uh, it, do you look at that and say, yeah, that makes a lot of sense? Or do you say, I, I'm having a hard time wrapping my head around that one and buying it?
2: Well, Scott, I got to tell you, you know, this is 2020. So keep that in mind. Just 2020, um, as Barbara Walters would say. And so we're looking at uh, 2051, which is what we've been told by the province we now need to project our growth plans for. Um, we had done 780,000 people, I think, for 2041. I'm not even sure we've hit our growth numbers for 2020 let alone what's going to come in the future. You know, no one saw COVID coming and no one saw all these people that are going to be out of work. And, you know, my biggest fear and my biggest worry, God bless the people that um, are possibly looking at bankruptcy, businesses closing. We don't even know what that's going to look like in in, uh, in November of this year, 2020. So it's very hard to predict But, um, you know, the province does put these figures on us and say, here's your growth plan. Um, what are you going to do to get there? What's your strategy? Put a plan together and, uh, you know, be prepared
0: for it. Well, and, and as I said, I mean, some of that would be urban intensification with going upwards, but there's also no doubt that it would mean stretching out. And when I look at the area of, you know, the greater Hamilton area and you see where the, the growth has been and where the developments have been for the last big pushes, Ancaster, Dundas, Waterdown, Stony Creek Mountain, uh, some of those areas are now pretty tapped out, uh, which would mean they would now be stretching into your ward and into Flamborough and into even the further regions, no?
2: Well, you know, stretching into into Waterdown, Flamborough area, Scott they've been, you know that, that expansion, that rural expansion has been here for almost 20 years. So water down, uh, the urban expansion has definitely taken place. We've got unprecedented growth. We're one of the fastest growing communities in the city of Hamilton. But you have to remember that sprawl is not sustainable. And I don't know how many times I have said that over the past 10 years. you know intensification internally within your urban boundaries, Let's look at that first, because sprawl is not sustainable. And what I mean by that is when you take an area, a new development, you're putting in new sewers, you're putting in new water lines, you're putting in new wells, you're putting in new infrastructure, that is only initially paid for by development charges to a certain extent. But after that, the city has to maintain it, taxpayers have to pay for it. And yes, you can say, okay, all the development, all those houses that have been built in there, they're now going to pay taxes, and, you know, so that should cover it. Well, it doesn't. It costs the same amount of money if you put in a new subdivision with 30 houses in it as you put in a new high-rise with 100 units in it. So, you know, do the math and, and really it's the intensification is what, um, is needed within the city of Hamilton.
0: That, okay. So, and, and I, I mean, I agree with you. I think that the intensification is, is obviously going to be a big deal. We've talked to a couple of real estate agents now, again, it's 2020. I know it's a weird circumstance, of course, this year with COVID and everything, but the, the real push right now seems to be that people are wanting Houses with property, houses with a yard, houses with space in case something ever happens again, rather than necessarily just a downtown condo. would that would if we don't have more sprawl, will that not absolutely drive the cost of houses as, even in your area and, and especially in your area right through the roof?
2: Well, you know what I disagree I disagree first of all with the fact that you know everybody wants a home with property. A lot of young, uh, young people, especially young professionals, and I have two sons myself, they don't want the yard. They don't want the big sprawling house. What they want is a more functional space that they can work out of. And, you know, a lot of people are working at home and a lot of our young people are working from home and have been for a while. Um, so... I, I disagree with that whole premise that everybody wants the sprawling yard. Yes, those who can afford it. But quite honestly, Scott, my gosh, take a look at the cost of real estate outside That's of the city the, of Hamilton yeah. and inside the city of Hamilton. And I yep. know where we live, the young people can't afford this. So they're not looking for this. They're looking for a more efficient way of living to tie in with, all right, Where can I go rock climbing? Where can I go hiking in the waterfalls? Where can I go kayaking? Where can I go river rafting? They want to know more about where they can have a good balance in
0: life. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Judy, I I do wonder, what do you get, what sense do you have even among your constituents about an appetite for further sprawl out there? Because I get the sense many of the people who live out in the rural areas of Flamborough have chosen to live there because they want to be in the rural areas and not all of a sudden have a housing development next door.
2: Well, Scott, I mean, one thing you have to remember is that people who live in the rural communities, they didn't just suddenly decide to move out here. Many of the families out here have been here for 140, 150 years, you know, 100 years, 50 years. They're farmers, uh, they're business owners. Now, we do have the subdivisions. We do have people moving in. And by and large, a lot of them are coming from those big city centers to the uh, uh, east of us, particularly Brampton, Mississauga. And, you know, they're coming to a quieter community um, of waterdown and um, but I will tell you to answer your question, yes, the explosive growth in waterdown, which was all decided back in 2002 to 2005. So we're at 2020. Back in 2005, all of the decisions were made to expand the community. It is absolutely expanding beyond belief. We don't have the infrastructure, in terms of uh, the roadways, which we're trying to build as quickly as we can, because we lost that fight at the Ontario Municipal Board when they uh, you know, ruled that the uh, developers could go ahead and build to their heart's content. In the city, they said, no, you're going to lose this battle. So what have I heard from my residents? They're absolutely fed up with the amount of traffic, because people are driving, people, especially with COVID now, you don't have people taking transit. We do have a transit system that's efficient in water down, and a lot of people use it, as much as some would say they don't, they do. Um, but yeah, it, it's a real challenge, and it isn't just water down. I would say it's the same for Stony Creek, it's the same for Glenbrook, Binbrook, uh, Mount Hope, all of those areas, Lancaster, it's the same.
0: You mentioned transit. That that certainly becomes one of the peripheral issues if expansion starts to spread, because uh, presumably some of the people who would be out there, as you add more and more people, would want to still be able to get places in the city and not just drive. Um, mm. How do you? I mean, I know it's such a sore issue, <laughs> one we're so tired <laughs> about talking about. But oh,
2: how, on, how does that? There, pl-
0: <laughs> well, how does that play into it then? That all of a sudden we now have to deal with transit. I mean, there's lots of other ones, but we'll start there.
2: Okay, so that's a good place to start, and I'll tell you why. If you look at the city of Hamilton and you look at where are the new business parks and where are the new businesses locating, they are locating at the airport. They're locating in Flamborough at Clappison Corners. We have four business parks. Innovation Park, which has been there for about 35 years, but now we have three more new business parks. We have Stryker moving in, 300 jobs. They just opened a beautiful new facility. We have L3 West Camp, 1,400 jobs coming. We just heard today that we have Amazon coming. We have all these big companies locating. Stony Creek is another area that is exploding with business parks. Where are the people locating? They are locating in Mount Hope, Binbrook, Stony Creek, Waterdown, Flamborough. all those areas. Where's the transit? Downtown. The mountain isn't even well served. And I look at Ward 6 and Ward 7, and, uh, you know, I, I just I can't believe, even in Ancaster, that they don't have the transit connectivity that we need. We need transit that will connect not only all of our communities together, but will get people to those jobs. Where are people building? Where or, Sorry, where are they locating? Where are they choosing to be residents? And where are the jobs? And these are high-paying jobs. You know, West uh, coming into uh, Clapson's Corners with 1,400 new jobs. They've got 900 to begin with. They're hiring 500 more engineers. Engineers. These are high-paying jobs. We have to have transit that will work to connect people to those
0: jobs. We only have 30 seconds and I apologize because I wish we could do more, but one more thing. Um, one of the concerns that a lot of people have is if we do start to expand out further and further, farmland gets chewed up. What kind of rules do we have in place that protects farmland right now?
2: Thank you for bringing that up because I will tell you that one of the um, expansion plans when, when the provincial government is looking, you know, if you're going to build, if you're going to have sprawl, you are going to need to bring aggregate to, to build new roads and to build buildings. Where does the aggregate come from? It comes from the rural communities and Flamborough has a number of aggregate locations. So we need to protect our land and we have the greenbelt, thank goodness. But the provincial government did ask for some feedback on, you know, should we get rid of the environmental assessments on environmentally sensitive land and species at risk? And a motion that... uh, was unanimously supported by council that I put forward was absolutely not. We cannot take that provision out because we have to protect our farmland. We have to protect our farmers. You know, they've invested their life, work, and savings into giving back to our community. And they are a huge part of our community. And I will keep banging that drum for our farmers because agriculture represents 1.6% billion dollars in the economy of Hamilton. Scott, it's so important.
0: Judy Partridge, Ward 15 Councillor, appreciate the time today. I know you were very busy. I appreciate you jamming it in. Thank you.
2: Thank you, Scott. Take care.
0: You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Researchers in Europe have discovered that it is virtually impossible to stay completely still when you hear certain music. Why? Why do we have a physical response to a non-tangible thing? Well, let me bring in Dr. Jessica Grant. She's an associate professor in the Brain and Mind Institute in the Department of Psychology at Western University. She studies the science of music. She joins us now. Dr. Gron, thanks for doing this today.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: I was trying to think of another example of something that is a non-tangible thing that leads to a tangible response like what we were just doing. Um, Taste doesn't really work because you're tasting something physical. Uh, Smell, I mean, there's particles that you're smelling. That doesn't work. Touch obviously doesn't. Why does music do this to us?
1: Yeah, this is a question that's occupied a lot of my career, and a lot of music neuroscientists in general are really interested in this question. Even other sounds we don't move to, so it can't even be something specific just to sound sound. You know, if I hear a car backing up that's got a rear sensor and it goes beep, beep, I don't suddenly find myself tapping along, but you place Hopefully music. jumping
0: out of the way, but yes. Yeah,
1: right, exactly. <laughs> some, some responses are evolutionarily helpful, yes. So, so it's, a, it's a good question. And one idea is that there's something intrinsic, particularly for humans, in the link between sound and movement, perhaps because of our language, that we need to hear the language around us as infants, and pick up on the movements necessary to produce that language. However, infants show responses to music very early, far before they've started to learn any sort of language or produce language that we can really recognize. So there's something really ingrained about our response to music. It happens very early.
0: Right. This is not an acquired thing. This is something that you, I mean, everyone's seen a, a video or seen there where a baby music starts and the baby starts rocking or clapping or whatever. I mean, no one taught them that.
1: Exactly. Now, it's tricky because infants and um, come out being able to hear, and they've actually been able to hear for about three months, maybe a little longer, before they're even born. So to do the studies that show that it truly is innate and has nothing to do with their environment is very difficult because the soonest we can really control the environment that way is after the baby's out of the mother's body and at that point, it's already had a lot of auditory experience going on. So this is a cool thing about sound, that it really gets through very, very early on in development. So that might be right. one of the reasons that has such an influence.
0: Right, and, and we've all seen mothers, whether they are completely being, you know, it, I don't know what the right word is, you know, pregnant women who have put speakers to their stomachs or headphones or whatever, saying, my baby can hear it, my baby, and they probably can, but is yeah. it is your do you believe that your taste in music is hardwired or is that something that's acquired? If mom plays Drake through her stomach to you all while you're pregnant, while she's pregnant, do you believe you'll come out liking that music or classical or something else? Or is that just something you're born with a certain taste?
1: Yeah, no, this is a good question. All signs really point to the fact that our capacity to be drawn to music and be influenced by music and to have music move us really seems to be innate. But the specifics about that music very much seem to be acquired. There's some really cool studies with infants six months old listening to different kinds of music and the experimenters will put a little error in the music. And adults will only recognize errors that is in the music that they've grown up listening to. But infants will recognize errors in all kinds of music so they seem to be more open to a wider range of, of different types of music than adults might be. All
0: right. Let, I, I, what happens, and maybe this is just way too complicated, but let's try it anyway. We hear music. What is happening in our brain? Are there parts of the brain that are, let me start again, the parts of our, I know parts of our brain are obviously stimulated by music. That, that goes without saying, but are the parts of our brain that are stimulated by music close in proximity or somehow connected to parts of the brain that lead to movement?
1: Absolutely. So one of the cool things from a neuroscientist perspective about music is that so much of the brain responds because we have emotional relationships with music. We are processing a complex sound. So the auditory, the sound processing system is really robust, but it also turns out several studies now have shown that when you are staying as still as you can, Listening to music, you still see the motor system responding, and in fact, you have all parts of the motor system except for the part that's responsible for making the actual movement. And that's because in these studies, they had people stay still. But all the parts of the system that are involved in selecting a movement, or timing a movement, or initiating a movement, seem to respond when we listen to music.
0: And it's it's a funny thing you mentioned because I was reading that in Norway. I mean, the Norwegians. Who can explain? But the Nor in Norway. <laughs> They have these things called standstill competitions and they will play a song like another one bites the dust or beat it or something that is basically impossible not to respond to. And it's a contest to see who can move the least or not move at all. And you would think that if you're concentrating on not moving, if, if it's not a subconscious thing or know subliminal thing where you're not really paying attention and you just start tapping your toe, but if you're thinking about not moving, it should be super easy to do. And even they can't do it.
1: No, I think this is really cool. The idea that we actually can't resist this movement, even if they're tiny, little little movements, they are still greater when music is playing. That really does suggest that there's something going on here that we we can't fully control. And I think that might be not as surprising if you think about the fact that when we listen to music, we often can't control the emotional responses we have to it or whether we like it or whether it makes us want to get up and dance, even if we can control what we think are the outward manifestations of that, these responses can be very strong. If a song comes on the radio that you hate, it's really pretty visceral. It's hard to just say, oh, well, whatever, at least for most of us. So there does seem to be, and this study shows it further, something really low level in the wiring between the auditory and the sound systems.
0: But we do have the ability within reason to control other instinctive things. I mean, if you're hungry, we don't automatically have to run to the fridge immediately. We can feel hungry, but we can wait. Or if you're thirsty or if you're angry, I mean, any other thing we can say, I'm aware of that feeling or that urge, but I don't need to respond to it immediately. Whereas this one doesn't let us do that.
1: Yeah. And that actually brings um, an interesting point up, which is one of the areas that seems to be really important in the brain for our response to rhythm and music, is called the basal ganglia. And the basal ganglia are compromised, for example, in Parkinson's patients. they have deterioration, and that really affects the Parkinsonian patient's movement. Uh, but the other thing that is affected or the other syndrome in which we see changes in the basal ganglia is Tourette syndrome, which actually is a bit of a lack of control over certain types of, of behaviors, where the, the person with Tourette's is not really interested in suddenly shouting something or making a sudden movement, they can't help it. And it's been interesting to me, and it's been interesting to other researchers to notice that when we feel music that has a strong beat, the basal ganglia are also involved in that. So that may give us some clues into how involuntary our response to music actually is.
0: Well, and I may be going way off track here. I don't know, but I I know someone who has Tourette's, not severe, severe, but noticeable. But when he sings, it's not affecting him anymore. He can sing without any of the Tourette's impact, which, you know, sort of, uh, does that mean that the, the music has taken over that part that is causing problems?
1: So many researchers are interested in this, both with Tourette and with stuttering, which interestingly also involves the basal ganglia and also can improve dramatically with singing compared to speaking. There does seem to be some sort of link, in whether, yeah, music takes over the basal ganglia or provides some sort of external pacing that really helps relieve some of these internal differences. I, nobody really knows yet, but this is an area of active study in neuroscience.
0: Again, very weird little note from this study that they were doing in Europe about the inability not to move to music. Um, And and again, they did point out, I think before I get to that, they did point out, I think that you will respond to almost any music, but certain musics will make you certain types of music will make you respond a lot more. But it sounds as though even if someone were to fire up a dirgy Gregorian chant on the radio, you're still going to respond in some way.
1: Yeah, it, we do tend to have a response that's stronger when there's a beat that's around our normal, say, walking pace, 120 beats per minute. For some reason, that seems to grab us a bit more. But we do seem to have responses even when that beat isn't super clear, like something that's a bit slower or, or funereal, as you were saying.
0: Yeah, I would, uh, if you're out there listening and you really get riled up and can't stop tapping your toe to the Gregorian chants, well, that's uh, <laughs> that's on you. Yeah. Um, there was a there was a little bit in this thing as i was going to say a moment ago that i found fascinating too they seem to have found that your response and your inability to not respond is higher when you're listening to music through headphones as opposed to any other way any idea why that would be
1: yeah no this is an interesting point in the study and and again they can only speculate but i think the speculation that they they present in the paper makes sense which is that when you're listening with headphones, you block everything else out. So there's really no other sensory input to help mitigate or reduce the effect of the music that's coming in. But when you have headphones, you really don't have any other auditory input, especially if they're sort of in-ear or or aural where they're blocking other sensory input. And we've seen this in general in studies that people report feeling more immersed in music when they've been given a uh, delivery system like headphones that block out all the other external sounds. So that would be my guess, is that there's just nothing else in there to get in and put a little noise in the music signal or, or distract you at all from focusing on the music in the auditory stream.
0: So your answer makes way more sense than my theory on that one, which was that it's kind of like driving a car where you almost feel like you're... Alone, so you can respond more. Because I mean, you do stuff in your car when you're not you, but I mean, the big you. When you're in your car, you do stuff when you're by yourself that you normally would not do in real life because you kind of feel like nobody can see me in my little world here.
1: That's true, and actually, there's no data to support my theory over yours. So that's that's, (laughs) that's the study we can do.
0: I I would suggest that the PhD after your name is all the data you need (laughs) to support your theory over mine. This, when we go through this whole thing, though, then, and list all these ways, this is an, inc- it suggests that that music, but this whole thing is, it's an incredibly powerful thing.
1: Yes, and in fact, by far the strongest evidence for how music affects us has accumulated in studies of emotion regulation. So um, it affects us in our movements, and it can help with, with language in, in certain domains, but really the strongest thing that music can do um, is help us with our emotional responses. And these emotional responses are part of what drive our urge to get up and dance. That's a really Mm. reward-related thing that we we enjoy dancing. We might feel self-conscious, so we might need to have a a few drinks to reduce the the social inhibitions we put up around this. But really, once you get people out on the dance floor, that's how a party stays going till 4 a.m.,
0: I mean, we, you just got me thinking there. I wonder if enough alcohol would inhibit even this thing that makes you want to move, if that would affect it. But anyway, that's a discussion for another day. (laughs) Um, So we know now, okay, as you say, music can affect our mood. It can, it can alter how we feel about things. Um, It can, and you and I many years ago on the show talked about this. It can, in a inexplicable to me anyway, weird way, give us extra juice when we're working out. If you're struggling Mm. to work out and you put on a good song, somehow that song can make you stronger or faster or have more energy or something, which is amazing. What else can it do?
1: Yeah, this is a good question. So we've seen some really interesting uh, case studies uh, in dementia, for example, where patients who are really non-responsive to the outside environment, they, they appear almost catatonic when given music, especially if they're someone who was really into the music that they listened to, they were real music aficionados, they're given music from earlier in their lives that can really bring them out of this state and such that they can interact and, and talk and, um, and be part of the world again in a way that they couldn't before, they didn't appear to be able to before hearing this music. And interestingly, Music seems to be preserved in our memory systems. So, for example, again, in dementia, people who can no longer recognize family members will still be able to hum along or show signs of recognition to music from their youth. So things like that, which really show that music is ingrained in our memory systems, I think are really, really fascinating. There's also some evidence that it can help with with language, that rhythm skills in particular seem to translate or relate to um, different types of language skills in children. So, yeah, I think there's a lot we don't know, probably more than we do, that people are still working on.
0: Well, I mean, think about, and most people have heard, I don't know if it's real or not, but certainly they sold a million albums with the Mozart effect, um, believing that classical music can make you smarter, and I remember... You know, when I was a kid and then when my son and daughter were younger, being told, you know, music is going to make you better at math because of the musical, you know, things that you have to do. And, um, you know, we've heard about music, classical music, calming down angry prisoners in jail or, you know, like there's so many different things that it seems to be applied to. And everybody says that it works for all these things, which...
1: Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, this is what makes it tricky is that because music effects, for example, are emotion, emotion is huge if you're testing, for example, anything cognitive like your memory or your language skills. So if I'm depressed, I might look like I have dementia on a test of cognitive function. But it's not because my brain doesn't function well cognitively, it's because my motivation is completely sapped and my ability to process things has really changed because of the emotion. So teasing apart these specific effects. For example, things like the Mozart effect where you play Mozart, that all seems to be really driven by the changes in mood that people experience when listening to a fairly inoffensive, happy, upbeat piece of music. So it's not that Mozart's genius is somehow communicated to us through the music, which is, I think, <laughs> what people who are selling the albums want you to think. So, you know, listening to a great story or listening to music of your choice, which may not be as highbrow as Mozart, might also you know, cause the same thing. But we're still working out which of these effects are mood-driven and which of these actually seem to be about the specific types of input from music that, that aren't driven by changes in mood. And it's it's tricky because you can't tell somebody, well, don't have your emotional response to this piece of music because I'm really not interested in that. I want to know about the, the you know effect on your memory. We can't control that. So it makes these studies interesting to design.
0: All right, we got time for one more because I know you've got to get back. You've got young kids you got to look after. I appreciate you <laughs> taking some time away at the witching hour of the evening when the kids are great. But um, the one other thing about music that, that struck me as I was thinking about this today is that unlike taste or smell or touch, we can carry it with us after we have heard it and experienced it. No one says, no one's ever talked about a mouthworm where you've got a taste that sticks in your mouth all day because you, I mean, unless it's stuck in your teeth, but I mean, there's no lingering taste that sticks with you, but you hear a song that catches your ear. You're going to be humming it all day. Why?
1: Oh, this is another really interesting area. Usually you only see these sorts of potentially intrusive memories in, for example, PTSD or, or where there's been trauma. And while earworms can be very annoying, Usually they are, they're not the result or cause of, of any sort of trauma. And again, this is, it's not clear. There's, there are studies that show that there are certain things like earworms tend to really follow the style of music that you're most familiar with. So they don't always break a lot of rules. That's part of why they, they make their way into our brain so easily as our brains can process them easily, highly repetitive, usually upbeat. Um, but, but that's about as far as, as we really know why, why earworms exist. So, yeah, there aren't, at least coming to mind right away, a lot of other situations in which you can have something sticking around in your brain and it not be considered a disease or a pathological condition. Hmm.
0: It's all very fascinating stuff because I think we can all recognize certain things that we've experienced that we know to be true and yet... You know, it's very difficult to explain, especially when it seems to be the only sense that works the way that it does. Uh, None of the other ones seem to have all the same effects. Dr. Jessica Gron, really, listen, really appreciate the time today. Fascinating stuff. Thanks for taking some minutes. My pleasure.
1: The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900
0: CHML.